Researchers want to hear from patients. Patients and their families want to be involved. Why is this so hard to do? My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me a chance to learn about many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. We think that if patients and researchers got to know each other as people, the conversations would be much easier to start. Each month on Unprobable Developments, I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. Welcome to Improbable Developments Podcast. Today we're speaking with Lynn Becker. She's the founder of Power of Patients, which seeks to support people with traumatic brain injury, or TBI. Before starting Power of Patients, Lynn did clinical research for many years, including trials for some government agencies. It will be interesting to compare and contrast her clinical trial design work with that done by the pharmaceutical industry. And you know what? Lynn and I have a, a common thread. We both went to school in the city of Troy, New York. Um, both were in college there for a couple of years at least. I was at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in the early 1980s. So when were you there and where'd you go to school, Lynn? I too was there in the early 1980s. We are dating ourselves, but uh, I went to Russell Sage College and uh, I did most, most of my math and computer science work up at RPI. So I know the campus well. Fantastic. While well, you were there when I was there. Let's talk about your career first. Give our listeners an overview of what you were doing before you started Power of Patience. Sure, um, will do. So I started right after college working in the financial industry and I was bored beyond tears. I was like, this is one of the most boring applications of my math abilities. And I always had a passion for health and I was trying to figure out how can I figure out to put the two together, which I then discovered by the statistics in looking at graduate school programs. And next thing you know, I became an NIH fellow and went out to Los Angeles and started at USC, which my project was on twin lymphoblastic lymphoma patients, three-year-olds. And it was right when chemotherapeutic agents first started. And it was hard, uh, not just hard on the children and the families, but it was hard for me personally because I really did not know what I was getting into. I just thought how beautiful I can marry math and health in biostats and you know, I got depressed. And I mean, beyond sad, depressed, even though our work was good, it just seeing what happened to the children was was devastating to me. So I went to my boss and I explained how I was feeling and she encouraged me, hang in there. It's okay. We're doing, we're doing great work and we all go through this. And I stuck it out. And then I, I just ultimately at the end of the year, I, I had to resign because I was just too upset. So I thought to myself, oh my gosh, now I'm in Los Angeles from Podunk, Waterville, New York. <laughs> so now what do I do, right? And so I started in data entry at a medical device company. And I would peek around the corner, right, from my cubicle. And I would say, oh, wow, devices are kind of cool. I can go back into my biostats again. And this time I found a program at Loma Linda Med School. Their university has a biostatistics and epidemiology track, which I pursued the two of them. And so I went back into school, did that while working full time. And uh, it was, you know, the rest is history because I just then gravitated to the clinical interpretation of the numbers. I realized that, okay, devices aren't so bad. Okay. I kind of I got a little tougher, I could endure things, and their exposure of their program was so real to people's lives that, you know, it just took off from there. So stayed in California for eight years, doing mostly ocular research, and then I decided to go to uh, Charleston, South Carolina. I kind of had it with the big city. I wanted to go back to some rural roots, and I couldn't grow tomatoes to save my life in 
Southern California. So I ended up in uh, Charleston at the Medical University. And that's where I did a significant portion of my career in academic research. <clears throat> and with academics, as you know, Kevin, it will go from sometimes it's NIH sponsored, DOD sponsored, corporate sponsored, even industry sponsored. So, you know, I would go from project to project because as a statistician and epidemiologist, you you bring your best practices forward. So I eventually worked all the way up, you know, being directors and managers. Uh, the largest number of trials that I ran uh, was 62 sites. Um, that was a lot of travel, but again, it's really invigorating when I get to go out to the community. Uh, I even did a lot of animal studies. And then ultimately, um, between my daughter being injured, which we'll get to, I know, and my next career path, I ended up with the Department of Defense, the health agency for the DOD, and was part of the team that built the world's largest healthcare repository on Oracle. I'll give Oracle a plug. <laughs> and, um, you know, again, even though as a statistician and designing systems, I always try to design with the end goal in mind so that you know where your data is, how it was structured, and so on. And this was taking the elements backwards. We had to take all these homegrown systems and pull them together. So it was the advent of a true data merge of enormous proportions. So, you know, worked into then the VA, managing them, and then that rebuilding, and then got into the TBI portal, uh, managing the traumatic brain injury portal for the U.S. government with their research. So that's that's it in a nutshell. It's quite a path you took there, and I love that you started out with that that marrying of, of math and health, and then you felt the impact of working in healthcare, and working with patients, and working with kids, and even you know, from your mathematical cubicle somewhere, you know, you can see what's going on. You see the comments, you see the successes and the failures in the numbers, um, let alone in the, the people themselves. And so it's really cool how you did that. And then you, you kind of followed, you know, that path of where can I do that? Where can I, where can I apply that the best? And it's, it's amazing that you got into a lot of IT things and managing portals and it all sort of, fits together nicely when you look at it backwards, doesn't it? It's like, oh, yeah, that's how this happened. So I spent my entire career working in pharma, in industry, and we obviously do clinical trials. And so I'm, I'm a bit, you know, sheltered there. And I know how we go about it and what, what we do, why. What's different when you're, when you're working for grants in an academic setting and, and the government is, is oftentimes, in the work you've done, has oftentimes funded what you were doing what's different about it or what's the same what makes it special yeah that's a that's a great question and and actually all of those questions apply you know throughout my career path the first thing that's different and i think it probably comes to mind with most people is how slow the government can move which is very very true it's very very rigorous it's very structured pharma or device industries or you know corporations man we move lightning fast right we have got to keep the money flowing because the money is how you are able to go into the next research project and to keep promoting and and getting new drugs etc so the government though um also starts at the origin um almost like where think tanks were first born where professors would sit at universities and they dream up these great ideas and were funded and then the government would support them a little more and then industry would come in and swoop up the concept, right? So, so that really is still very true. What started happening in uh, Charleston, there was a merger of like when I was on the Office of Naval Research Project uh, and it was a Gullah Geechee project too, which was really, really interesting. And we had to marry with IBM the technology that they were able to develop and bring forward for this, it was a ship to shore application, the first of its kind where we did a remote biopsy program and we utilized satellite technology. So we ran our own T1 line, you know. So again, back to that theory that or concept, I would bring my best practices over and over to each project because the the honest to goodness truth is as I 
I don't want to sit in front of a computer screen all day. I want to get outside. <laughs> so make my work more efficient, you know? <laughs> uh, so um, anyway, so the similarity. So first, there's that notion the government slow is very slow, which they are. They're very methodical because if you're going to change a government sector project or plan, you know, you, it takes almost an act of Congress. But they also are very inventive, right, because they're going to support this new research. And, and those are the competitions for SBIRs and so on. But what was really, really cool with the TBI portal that I worked on, they were moving in a completely different manner than what traditionally happens in uh, corporate or traditionally happens in government research. Um, they were utilizing true best practices that were uh, primed for where all of this work was being done so that we could look at true health effective measures. For example, one base was very prone to using alternative therapies, meaning art therapy for their TBI soldiers, art therapy, uh, acupuncture, chiropractic, etc. Another base was very cognitive focused. And so we were looking at how can these different therapies either improve the life or improve the speed at which somebody recovers. So that was the first I ever saw the government do something like that, which was really kind of neat. You even referred to it, the incentive, the motivation for organizations to do things in industry is profit and funding and revenue. You want to get the products to the patients. That's kind of the end goal. That's what I loved when I went from my short academic experience into industry was it was applied science. It was no longer oh, we're trying to answer some questions. It's like, no, how are we going to use what we know? But for the, the, the projects you've been on, and in, in particular, let's talk about the TBI portal. What was the motivation organizationally for them to put so much into this and put so much work into it? Oh, my goodness. Because there's no definitive standard of care. And nobody knows how to heal or rehabilitate not just soldiers but people in general so their motivation is you know they want the soldiers recovered first and foremost but they also need them back on the field because he was these were the special ops teams that you know are are in all the secret missions so there's a lot of training that goes into those individuals and you need to make sure that not only are they back at their peak performance, but their life has been salvaged as well. So the motivation is to get them back onto the field where they belong and they want to be there. Similar to that, put me back in the game, coach. I feel okay. So that was the motivation for that. One of my favorite television shows over the past couple of years has been SEAL Team. And they, they had a whole storyline going about that, about the, about the put me back on the field, I'm okay when he really wasn't. Part of it was traumatic brain injury. Part of it was physical injuries in other parts of his body. And it, it really was a really good storyline. And you saw the struggle with someone who's so dedicated to what they're doing and, and their physical self is, is failing them by the way they're getting older too. And it was SEALs. So it was special ops guys who were you know in, in those situations where they're at risk. Um, but it's, you just, as you talked about it, I'm like, oh, wow, they did a really good job of explaining why the government would do that, why they need them back on the field and why they want to do it safely. And what, what's kind of interesting on that, just really quick, is that that's, that's what these individuals know is their family, right? Now, they have a family, but there is a true bond among these men and women in these teams that is, you just, you cannot believe it until you experience or witness it. I mean, we see it now in other other areas, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little as we get more into TBI, but, you know, team sports and things where you don't want to let your team down, so you push it a little farther. So tell me exactly, you explained a lot of things, but what was your role in those clinical trials you did, in the clinical research you did? What exactly were you doing, and what was the team around you? What did it look like? Uh, who were those folks? So again, as I worked my way up, you know, in terms of uh, promotions and things like that, first as that data entry person, then eventually I became a clinical trial research monitor, meaning I would go to all the sites 
I would inspect them, audit them, make sure that their data was in fact what they were reporting. So all of that, them building up into managing the trial, meaning other sites had study coordinators, but then I was managing them. Um, and then I got to work into being a part of the team where we started designing the trials, right? So you always have to have some sort of statistician and data person on these, and you have to calculate your power and, and all that sort of stuff. And then, but, but truly you have to be able to capture the data. I cannot tell you how many times, particularly in academics, how many times you're, you're nodding because you know and smiling. <laughs> People would collect all this data that did not support their research hypotheses. So finally, you know, people got smarter to include people like me at the table to design those trials. That was the start of the fun. To back that up, you don't mean they were collecting data, which was arguing against their hypothesis, or, but it was, it was irrelevant to their hypothesis. We, we actually had someone calculate that and Every data pointed that we collected, every one subject, one, one participant, one data point, to process it through everything it had to and finally get to an application to the FDA. So that's a, a whole ton of work in there, but each data point costs $75,000. If you don't need to take people's weight every time, you know, you just do it at beginning and end type of thing. Great, you just saved yourself, you know, 10 data points that you were just going to have to shepherd along. And you're not even going to look at because no one really, they're, you're only looking for like safety signals, which actually the, the doctor should be looking at right there. They should notice something's wrong. You don't wait for the database to tell you. Right, right. And that's your risk monitoring, right? So, so to your point, there are erroneous variables. Weight is a, is a prime one that is collected over and over again. Um, but then on other measures that you don't necessarily may know may or may not have an affect or are affected by the drug or device until it's kind of like after the fact. So then somebody like me is going to say, oh my God, I want all the data collect everything because you also don't know when people are going to show up or not show up. And I, I may have to apply averages, et cetera, right? All that stat stuff. But, um, but yes, I agree with you. So, so that was a big learning curve for research scientists, usually in academics, to make sure that they were really collecting important variables that meant it was going to support or not support, right, the hypotheses. One of the projects I was on, which is for a rare disease, and it was, um, there were so many secondary variables that it confounded the answer. And, and so you couldn't tell there was a difference because you had measured so many things and you had to take account of all those. As, and, and you looked at it and said, well, we, it's, yeah, it looks like a wash when you look at it, when you put it together. And that's what the FDA believed was, yeah, you haven't really shown anything because you got too many measurements going on of very similar things. You know, it was, you know, a sub subscale of a subscale of a subscale of the overall scale. So to your point there, that's the, that's like the advent of where the problems with all these new AI models are spitting out. There's so much data coming in and they're trying to harmonize the data and that's not how you do it. Right. You there, you have to make sure that you keep the underlying uh, models and their assumptions intact. And that's a big fallacy, uh, which in this big government data, you know, development that we worked on, on one of the projects, I wrote the, the white paper showing them models must maintain their underlying assumptions in order to be explainable. Because otherwise you're sitting there just like what you said with all this stuff and it's a wash. But so, so yeah, so being a part of the design team was always my most fun. You design the protocol, then you design all the intake. And again, now remember, I like to be outside. So I would design those intake forms so that they were so efficient <laughs> so, <laughs> that we didn't keep everybody in the office all the time. But yeah, I mean, oh yeah. So that's how I worked my way all the way up. And then the last couple of really cool research projects, you know, I think I told you one about my Gullah Geechee guys, probably my most favorite one ever. Um, but my other one, which was 
great was uh, when I ran the type two diabetes research project for Weight Watchers. And that was another like home run. Eyeballs are my favorite thing to work on, but those two projects are really outstanding in, in my opinion, you know, just for me personally. But I even worked on, you know, animal research, um, shrimp on a treadmill. <laughs> Sustainability. <laughs> so yeah, I got all sorts of stories. <laughs> shrimp on the treadmill. Just, my comedy mind went into to overdrive. What would that cartoon look like? Yeah, yeah. So I am all about making sure, right? You already, you already heard in the beginning my heartstrings, right? Like I thought I chose the wrong career. I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing here? And then I, I was able to see, oh, I can baby step my way back in. Okay, I'm going to be okay, right? So now I'm happy. I'm doing it. So I get this great project. And it was shortly after I had moved to Charleston from Southern California. And um, the Gullah Geechee population, uh, they are direct descendants of the slaves from the west coast of Africa off the island of Sierra Leone. And the community in the uh, South is, is very strict, very blue blood, very religious, you know, all everything that you just respect. Well, the government uh, has a nuclear waste repository uh, just above where the river runs in Aiken, South Carolina. And they were concerned that there could be some sort of contamination in the waters and in the earth. And the Gullah Geechee community at the time were still very much living off of the land, meaning eating the fish, farming in the region, as well as the animals when they would hunt. So they were concerned if there was indeed excessive levels of, of pollutants, the, this population could be ingesting them, and they were more concerned that it was also a risk factor for prostate cancer. And so they put together this research project to determine was there a high incidence of prostate cancer in this community, the Gullah Geechee community, uh, which was in uh, south of South Carolina, just right near, uh, called Beaufort, um, in one of their sea islands. So that was my project. I had to go down and I had to recruit six men, only six, because this was just a proof of concept. And since you're in the business and you know you understand, you always have your R&D. And then when you figure out the R&D, you go into your labs and from labs, you start hitting your phases. So we had to first make sure that we could even do a remote procedure. And it was a, if it was successful, it would be shipped to shore this application and save the government tons and tons of money. So all was good. Were the men sick or healthy? Could we do a remote procedure to save money? You know, everything had a, a good intention. So I go down there, you know, all doe-eyed. <laughs> I say, hi, I'm Lynn. <laughs> and we'd like to run this research project. And I already knew the community, like who I was supposed to introduce myself to and all that, which I did. And uh, I was flat out told look, you're white, you're blue-eyed, you're freckled-faced, and you're pregnant. I was pregnant with Natalie, my daughter at the time, my second daughter. And uh, they said, you're not going to get anywhere in this community. And I, I was stupefied. I, 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 you know, I can talk, right? I didn't know what to say. And I thought, geez, they don't even know me. I don't understand, right? I really, I really did not understand. So I, I asked the gentleman, I said, Gigi, can you, can you help me out here? I don't understand why you have such an aversion to this. And uh, he went on to explain their mistrust, that they don't trust the medical community because he immediately refused, or, um, recited the uh, Tuskegee incidents and all other incidents about abuse to particularly African-Americans. And so I knew of all these things. I mean, and there, there's a lot of atrocities in early days of research. You know, we had some mental health problems in the insane asylums, prisoner problems, pregnant women. I mean, you name it. We hit all the areas, right? So obviously, being in public health, I knew about this. And I listened to him. And I listened to his concerns. And he also said how the university treated the community poorly. They never fulfilled their promise. So that's just not who I am as a person. And so I thought to myself, all right, there's my issues. And so I told him and I said, all right, well, that's not who I am. And I am going to fulfill all my promises and I am going to stay here until you guys agree to listen to me. So, um, you know, 
every week, three times a week, I went into the shrimp shacks. I went into the tomato fields. I went into their employers if they worked in the, in the city departments. I went to the churches until finally one day, six months later, one of the gentlemen said, we accept you. And I was like, Yay! Hallelujah! <laughs> so when can we get started? Next thing you know, Kevin, we have 330 men on our study. And it was a pre-education post-study. It was very short, you know. And also, we only had two cases of prostate cancer out of 330. So it was very successful because they're a very healthy group. Like all the assessments we did, they were so healthy. It was great, you know. So we failed to reject the null hypothesis. But to me, that was a win. We also proved the technology. We even had the white guys from Hilton Head coming over wanting to get on the study. We were just getting such buzz. And so it was the first time I had to tell somebody, I'm sorry, you know, you're white. You can't get in the study. And, and it was just such an eye-opener for me. And I really, you know, they took me into their community um, and gave me gifts when I left and things like that. And so really were very appreciative of my efforts. But the, the message was, as I listened, I listened and I adapted to their needs. And that was my, my true learning and turning moment in my research career. I knew I could get people to come on board with me and have very successful retention um, if I listened to them. So I carried that all the way through. Oh, and it's such a lesson to be learned today. I mean, literally this morning I was watching a news report and they were talking about the vaccine trials that are going on for COVID at this moment and they're recruiting. And unfortunately, they need to have a certain representation of people of color, Latinos, people of different socioeconomic you know, situations, people with different disease backgrounds. And they're not getting those people into the trial at the right proportions. And it really is, well, stop pushing them and start listening to what their concerns are and learn how you can help them with their concerns. I think it, it's so timely. And hopefully by the time this podcast has, does come out, you know, we will have solved that problem. I'm, I'm skeptical we will. We don't change that quickly. Um, and it just, it's such a good story because it shows the, so it really points out the rigors of clinical trials and how just doing something like recruiting participants into it can become a hurdle unless you find a new way to do it. Um, so I, it's a great story. So. Let's turn away from your career now, which has prepared you for your career that you're doing today. Power of Patients has a very specific focus on TBI. Um, and could you share our listeners why that is? What's, what's, why is it so important to you? How did you get here? And, and tell us what TBI does. Sure, sure. Um, first, TBI is a traumatic brain injury, and it is extremely understudied. And what it does is it really disrupts a person's life across the board, meaning not just physically, emotionally, cognitively, uh, but even in their long-term situation, whether they're able to work or go to school and things like that. So we'll come back and visit all that stuff. But how I got there was um, my daughter had a, a terrible, terrible, horrible accident. A, a boy hit her on, on her left temple. And it was all intentional and all that. It was not a good scene, but it was really the start of, of her entirely new life. Um, she was knocked out. Her optic nerve was torn. She immediately became a different person. You know, she couldn't really walk. She, you know, was beyond any kind of comprehension. This happened at school. And it was also on her 17th birthday when all of this happened. I was intending, excuse me, intending to go and see her. She was uh, an academic scholar at a boarding school, and I was moving my older daughter into her dorm room at Emory at the time, and I was planning to go see her, my youngest daughter, for her birthday and take her out to dinner because I was close by. So uh, needless to say, the phone call came in, and my world stopped. You know, when people say their world stops, these are moments like, you stop breathing and, and you can't hear anything. And 
I remember it was a, a trainer on the phone and they said, um, your daughter has been hit and uh, she can't talk and she can't really see well and she doesn't know who she is and uh, she's got a personality change. And, and these words are just coming in and I'm holding her birthday cake and I dropped it right in the store. And I just, I'm like, what? What does that mean? A personality change? She said, what? What? I mean, you're just asking all these questions. And they're like, yeah, we just think it's a concussion. It's okay. <clears throat> and I'm like, what do you mean? It's just a concussion, a personality change. What does that mean? Like, these were things in all of my experience of studying all different body parts. I never studied concussions and TBIs nor was I even privy to any information about what it really was all, all going on with people. So anyway, uh, I said to my oldest daughter, I, I, have to get, I have to get to Natalie. And so we hustled up and I brought her back to her dorm room and I sped there. I told the school, like, you have to get her into the ER. She needs a CAT scan immediately. And they're like, no, no, no. She just has to go sleep in the in the um nurse's station and i'm like no she needs a cat scan right so that was the start kevin that was what uh motivated me the, the the point but i didn't get there for a few years later because you know in murphy's law anything that was going to go wrong went wrong with her health care as well a couple of days after the event, I couldn't transport her home. She was just not stable whatsoever. And then she stroked a couple of days after the initial event. Finally, I was able to get her back home. Um, but everybody kept saying, it's just a concussion. And you could see her eye was blown up, wasn't working right. She couldn't walk straight, right? She was very unsteady, not understanding concussions. At this point, this was in 2015. So I think, you know, the NFL was kind of just starting to come out with that CTE and Dr. McGee and, and all of that. So I still, I didn't know much about it as well. And we went from doctor to doctor to doctor, like literally six neurologists in town over the course of the next year and a half, even a neuro ophthalmologist that was like the best of the best. And they all just kept saying, it's just a concussion. It's just a concussion. And, you know, CAT scans and MRIs. And, and I'm thinking, this does not seem right. She, she couldn't remember how to run. She had to like, you could watch her literally, you know, so she's starting to walk a little and it's like, whoa, it, it actually, what happened was it was raining and we had to run to the car because the downpours in Charleston are intense. And she goes, I don't know how to run. And like, what? So it was like, it was like so many what's, what, when we would try to be quote normal, right? Do our activities. And so, you know, I took her to, as I said, so many doctors and even knowing the right doctor to go to in hindsight, I realized was a challenge because neurologists, I would think would know lots about brains, but some specialize in Parkinson's, some specialize in Alzheimer's, some don't really specialize in anything. Um, they just are a general neurologist. And, you know, one was drug after drug after drug. Another, another even insulted us and said, well, you're just here because of the movie Concussion. And at this point, I had seen so many doctors and I didn't understand what was happening. She was having heart attacks. She was having these um, outbursts. I, would, I was, you know, my daughter's world, right? Everything. She would sleep approximately 16 to 20 hours every day. And all they kept telling me was, she just has to rest. She just has to sleep. And I was thinking, she's like Rip Van Winkle. When does this stop? So I would pull in research papers, right? Trying to understand. And there was almost like no research papers to be found. I was trying to cross check and cross code everything in PubMed. And I was coming up empty handed. It, it was very frustrating. And then, um, Finally, a doctor, I had reached out to two doctors, one in New York and one in Penn. And the one in New York said, you're not being treated right. This is a traumatic brain injury. That was, that was heart stopping moment number two. And, you know, if I go on about all of my daughter's injuries, we need two more podcasts for that, but, or her symptoms, I should say. And then the second doctor in Penn, she called and said, 
bring her up, we can help. And I was game for anything. Like somebody said they can help. Okay, we're, we're there. Like I've got to figure out how to get my daughter back. And she went from, she had to be homeschooled, right? She couldn't really see. And we didn't even know the capacity, the um, extent to which her vision issues were for a year and a half after as well, because we kept going to ophthalmologists instead of an optometrist who was neurally focused. Like the subtle differences of, is, you know, so here's where I sit here and I say, I drank the Kool-Aid, right? I kept following the doctor's orders. Let her rest, let her rest, take this drug, do this. And now I didn't let her take the drugs because I knew better. They weren't indicated for a TBI. And when I would ask them very specific questions about indications of use, you know, then they would say I was belligerent. And I'm like, I'm not belligerent. I'm trying to protect her. I'm trying to help her. So, you know, when you when you speak up, that's an issue that you have to make sure you're ready for that with a doctor. You started the story saying that the, the discussion today, when you got into biostats and you're seeing those patients for the first time, how it hit you. And then you have a whole career where you should be learning all this stuff and how things work. And you're very well prepared for this. And then it happens and you realize, wait, there's some fundamental things that aren't working here. And that's one of them was that everyone was, you know, focused on concussion, you know, instead of TBI. The other was the doctors who telling you, oh, it's because you watched a movie. And then another one that you had to be strong with. Just the imbalance of the discussion that goes on in that is, is huge. I belong to the Society for Participatory Medicine, and we're trying to change that dynamic. We want it so that patients can talk to their doctors and say, this is what I'm experiencing it right now. Don't tell me what I'm experiencing. Listen, and tell me what you're doing and why you're thinking that you're taking me down that diagnostic path or therapeutic path, because we've got to have a conversation here. Um, and that often doesn't happen. Right. And, you know, that's a great society. I need to be a part of that with you all to, to see how I can help. But to your point, this is where it gets very complicated with a TBI versus concussion. People who experience traumatic brain injuries can't articulate what the heck is happening to them. Right. It, and then, it, you know, so you have an adult. Now they have this injury. They're having trouble speaking, finding words, even expressing, then that kicks off the autonomic system. Their panic sets in, you know, they're hyperventilating, you know, a panic attack mirrors a heart attack. I can't tell you how many times I had a rush to the ER myself, right? Because I didn't know if I had a healthcare team, like we had with diabetes, right? People were being called and checking on their meds and things like that. If I had a healthcare team that was really just spot on and cognizant of all these problems that are going to happen. And it's, it's almost like an onion layer as one finally kind of you get another one pops up. It's like, where the heck did this come from? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the things about, you know, the dashboard is, and it's really ironic. You use almost verbatim. One of the uh, women that's using the dashboard, she emailed me and she goes, this is so beautiful. I can tell my doctor I'm not crazy. Look at my pattern of symptoms, right? Because she's logging her symptoms every day. And she's a stroke person. Um, she did not have a TBI, but they mirror one another so closely. You mentioned the dashboard. What are the things that TBI is offering to, to patients? you know, who, who find they've had a traumatic brain injury or, or suspect they may have TBI. I, you know, I love the word that you said suspect. And you know why I love that is because, you know, to fully inform everybody is that the majority of TBI cases and concussions are missed. You know, the, the Center for Disease Control puts in the report to Congress that they're missing at least 57%. Whereas the Department of Defense says we're missing 80%. You know, it just depends upon which report you want to read, but we're missing more than half. Let's just, you know, do that. So now the numbers become in the tens of millions of people suffering from this. And, and that's just horrendous. So, so with those numbers, right, we don't have a lot of people understanding because you said it's, they may suspect. So if you were injured, and a diagnosis, or even if not, it's a free platform that I created. And 
we take the person's story around their injury. So if you think of back in the old days, when we went to the doctor and the doctor took out their paper and pen and he or she wrote notes and spoke with us and we had conversations. So that's what we first start with. We want to hear everything about their injury because there's so much richness in what happened to the person that we're missing. Like all of our electronic health records don't capture the patient's voice. They capture ICD codes. So after we ask about the injury, then we start asking, what are your symptoms? And think of it like Mad Libs. We walk them through all different categories, emotional symptoms, physical symptoms, cognitive, uh, environmental. And then after that, by the way, I have to give a plug for Sally. Sally is our therapy dog on the dashboard, and she was my daughter's therapy dog. So that's how Sally became forever immortal, and she lives on the Power of Patients dashboard. So Sally comes and asks you triggers. And I don't know if you're familiar with social determinants of health. Um, I'm sure you are. But for the audience, yeah, for the audience, a social determinant of health is something that is outside of the medical office or practice, <clears throat> meaning uh, do you have access to proper food? Uh, what is your SES? What is your race? Um, where do you live? Things like that. But now the research world is learning that social determinants of health are also things that are other than that, meaning environmental exposures, large crowds, stress from your family, stress from your job. Uh, it, it falls into the everything else bucket. So we collect that on the dashboard as well. So one of the things that we then do is we then apply all this AI and then we create a customized dashboard. Somebody decides what everything is in the patient's control. They track what they want to track and we want them to do it every day. And that's where Sally comes and gets you every day. Like I have to go to the bathroom, right? She comes and gets you. <laughs> gotta let the dog out. <laughs> you gotta come track. <laughs> We're working on animating Sally. So that'll be like a new kind of add on soon. Um, but so you just, it takes like two minutes, you fill it out. It's very bare bones back all the way to our conversation that you don't need to collect tons and tons of stuff. You have to collect what's important to the person. And then we let the person choose what do we want to track. Now, we have seen that too many things to track gets overwhelming with somebody with a TBI. Now, once they're getting used to it, now they're asking us, can we track more? We want to add more symptoms. And so that's really kind of exciting because they're, they're getting it. And then they get a personal dashboard and they have a time trend of their ups and downs. And when they have extreme days, either good or bad, we ask them what happened. Because the more we learn about what they did to prevent or cause, then that's where our AI kicks in so we can help them manage and monitor. Now, I didn't pick that up from your website, that all of that was there, probably because I didn't sign up for the dashboard. But that's amazing work. And you're collecting data from the people who it matters to. and you're letting them shape that in some form, whether it's start out limited and they ask for more or somehow targeting what, what would be best to track for them, but then giving them the data back, which is like, you can, you can see how you're doing because they're going to pick up just self-care things like, oh, every time I, you know, eat something or I go drink, which I just, I traumatic brain injury and drinking to me just sounds painful, but the, you know, they're going to notice things and it's like, yeah, then I have a bad day or two. And, and they'll be able to change some things, medications, all that. I mean, it's fantastic. Wow. And I, I appreciate you telling me about the website because, you know, I'm a data person. So the dashboard is perfect and beautiful, but I don't know how to do graphical design. So I keep tweaking the I, So please, whatever input you can give me, I will take it because I'm trying to make it so obvious. I just added a little um, mini video on the website couple days ago to help with that issue but you but you know what's really great is because so if we go kind of all the way back two steps one this is what I learned from the Gullah guys right I learned to listen so I'm listening to the patients here and they get to do it they're totally in charge if they want to share this with their doctor which uh, one person did 
Um, and she recognized, so she had a very, very extreme stroke. Like I said, we're, we started with TBI, but we already have stroke people and we have a, a physician on board as well, too. She realized with the hurricanes that were hitting down in the South, the pressure, the intracranial pressure, she would run to the ER because she thought she was having another stroke. And then she would be admitted for days on end. And she realized the high atmospheric pressure was causing the headache. It wasn't a stroke. She goes, do you know how freeing that was? I mean, she was just ecstatic. So that's, that's a big win right there. If that's as good as I can get it, that's a win. But that's where in putting all this together for the clinical trials, to your point where you have said in our conversation before, how we design to the symptoms of the people. And that's my intent. If we can really show what happens outside the perfect lab, right? Because that's not real world. This is truly real world evidence. In, in something like this, in TBI, real world evidence is way more important than the, the controlled clinical trial aspect. Controlled clinical trial has their spot in this, but as you started out talking about it, no one knows how to treat this. No one knows what the course of P TBI is for any one person. It's too varied. There's no standards. It's, it's like, yeah, you're, in a, a, you're pioneering here. And so real world evidence is what you deal with. I mean, it, and, it's, and it's really probably more important. So are your daughters involved in the organization at all? So, yeah, that's, that's a great question. And obviously, they're my motivation. They're my inspiration. And um, yes, they're my guinea pigs, to be very honest with you. <laughs> so um, Natalie is my youngest, and she is doing really well. And uh, I ask her to continually track and monitor because, you know, now she's five years out. Her sister, though, Alexandria, and she goes by Alex, she has had six concussions and TBIs. And uh, yeah, I, it, you know, I'm going to just say right up front, mother's guilt. Let me tell you what. Um, her first four were sports related. And now we're talking literally more than 12 years ago when it all started. And it was at a summer camp, but her eye was so injured. Uh, a, a tennis ball hit her dead on in her eye, probably like 80 miles an hour and knocked her out. I saw her eye as the injury. I didn't see a head injury. And even though we went to the ophthalmologist, which she was great and, you know, she had some damage, but nobody ever said, go to a neurologist, but she did lose consciousness. So, you know, it, this is now retrospective. Then she became a big volleyball player and um, head to the floor, knee to the head you know, elbow to the head. So she, uh, she was at boarding school as well. And, and in Massachusetts, they have a, a great protocol where you must be out for 10 days. Well, at the time, this is, and this is to show you how research is evolving, right? So that was less than 10 years ago. That was probably six years ago. So at the time, you would think, oh, that's 10 days, right? That's probably logical, right? We didn't know cumulative effects at the time. And I kept saying to them, oh, my God, is her eye okay? Is her eye okay? Get her to the ophthalmologist, right? And, you know, she did the impact testing. And then she confessed to me how it's very easy to fake those tests and you can get out of them because put me in the game, coach. I'm okay. So hindsight being 2020, as, as these unbelievable situations and things were happening with Natalie and I'm pulling research and now educating myself about concussions and TBIs, I'm starting to go backwards and think about Alex and what happened and her behaviors. And I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, she's, she's post-concussive, right? Just trying to put the pieces together. To your point also, it wasn't diagnosed, right? So her last two, um, her senior year in college, she was at a stoplight and got rear-ended, minimal, and then was injured and couldn't stop vomiting for months. And what they kept saying was simply whiplash ended up being, she started having spastic modes and then seizures. And I'm like, what? Where is this coming from? Right? She went from never seeing doctors to like, holy cow. Then uh, finally got her fixed with all that and then was run over by a car. 
I'm like, this can't be true. So Alex is actively tracking and going through all the rehab that I had learned about with Natalie. So I feel fortunate that I have the knowledge I have about what I figured out to do to help Natalie. I'm at least fast tracking Alex. So she's very actively involved. Amazing that the, the connections again, where you started school, what you did, 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 all the way through to one daughter to the next daughter, helping you understand what to do. Amazing. So I need to ask you to give a plug here and let people know how they can get in contact with you, um, the types of things maybe they should look for before they get in contact with you. Um, where can they find you? So people can get in touch with me uh, very easily. The website is powerofpatience.com, P-O-W-E-R-O-F-P-A-T-I-E-N-T-S.com. Um, they can also email me. And it's Lynn, L-Y-N-N-E, at powerofpatience.com. And if they go to the website, there's a register button for a new user, returning users, as well as a login button. So we try to have it all over. We can send them material if they would like to see brochures. Uh, we also have, if they go to the dashboard. So the dashboard is really secure. You are not allowed into the dashboard unless you are a registered user. So we keep, we're very serious about HIPAA compliance and PHI. So, um, but on the dashboard, I hold monthly webinars as well. And we post them up there because there's so many influences that we can help with, whether it's going to be not really influences as much as um, discoveries in terms of what is being injured from the head injury. So vagus nerve issues, neurooptometry. There's all different information packets about clinical trial on this dashboard in our media file as well. And just a little spoiler. So we are Alex, my daughter, the one that's involved with the company a little bit more. She is going to volunteer to do visual therapy remotely with a couple of doctors that are neurooptometrists. And it's to expose people to how much the eyes are involved with a brain injury, which is a misnomer again. Uh, it's amazing. So really, really interesting therapy that's going to happen. So that's going to be on the dashboard as well. Thank you for your time today. I, this is going to be very interesting to our listeners. I think the work you're doing is fantastic. Please subscribe to Improbable Developments wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends to give us a listen.